I am Sumit Gupta and this is Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams at work and life. This is a podcast for people who know deep inside that there is more. Have you achieved a great deal of success, but on the inside you still feel empty and like an imposter? Do other people see you as a strong leader and you wonder why it still feels so lonely and suffocating? The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. I dare to speak to the tremendous power which you already have rather than what you believe are your strengths and limitations. This podcast is called Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. And this is the Leadership Journey series. I am interviewing leaders with an interesting story to learn how they got where they are today. We all have a lot to learn from each other's stories of where we started, where we are now and our successes and struggles on the way. With this series of interviews, my attempt is to give leaders an opportunity to share their stories and for all of us to learn from their generous sharing. Kate works to merge the worlds of economic growth and human development. She works directly with entities like the World Bank, the European Development Financing Institutions, and startups. She leads projects for African and Latin American companies, international development organizations, and the American government through USAID. She has studied in four continents and brings a global perspective when leading teams and aligning businesses in emerging economies with international investment standards. Kate opens up about growing up in a very isolated town with a population of only 432 and how that created a hunger to go out and experience the world. She talks about studying in Italy and later Ireland and then working in South Africa and Dubai on international aid programs. She talks about how leaving her country taught her the value of empathy and seeing the different ways people do things in different places. Hi, Kate. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing quite good. Thank you for appearing on this interview and being open to sharing your leadership journey with us. It is a pleasure. I, I would say after the last few years of uh, relative isolation, there's nothing more pleasing and enjoyable than to get together with a like-minded person and, and explore the issue of leadership in business is something I'm, I'm very personally passionate about. Wonderful. So to start with, can you share a little bit about yourself and what do you do? Yeah, I am a person who straddles many worlds, I would say. My, my day job is that I work for an international technology company called Oracle NetSuite. And I lead our programs with industry associations and buying groups. And that is a, a very satisfying and fun part of my life. And then on the side, in my leisure time, I also provide environmental, social, and governance, or ESG advisory and impact investment advisory, primarily to companies and investors in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and parts of Europe. So that's two, two very different uh, domains. Uh, can you share your story? It must have an interesting story that how you um, got to doing what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah. I, I grew up in a very small town in Northern California called Trinidad, California. And, and people think of California as, as big cities and beaches. And my town had a population of 432. 
and was in the, the northern reaches of the state, almost to the Oregon border, right on the coast. I grew up very much ensconced by the, the sort of reaches of redwood trees uh, to the east and the, the wide expanse of the Pacific Ocean to the west. I grew up in a very small town. My, my father was the mayor and my mother and father were both small business owners. And in a lot of ways, I always kind of I giggle about the, the way that I formed my life in such an international way because it started in a very isolated, small corner of the universe. And I wonder sometimes whether that's not part of the motivation to, to go and explore. I think sometimes when we grow up in a world that's quite isolated, we are acutely aware of all that we're missing out on. <laughs> And, and there could become a hunger and an interest in getting out there into the world. So I went to university in, in the Bay Area. I went to St. Mary's College of California, which is a very excellent, small liberal arts college nestled in, in the mountains just east of San Francisco and, and Berkeley. And then I traveled overseas to do a, a semester abroad in Italy during my third year. And I, I decided that was it. I wanted to be outside of the U.S. That for me was the... The, the clinching experience that made me realize that there was a lot of exciting things going on outside of the U.S. and I wanted to be part of it. So when I graduated from St. Mary's, I went uh, to do my first master's in women's studies at University College Dublin in Ireland, mainly because I knew I wanted to be back in Europe and Ireland is an English speaking country. So it was just a little more navigable for me. And yeah, so I did my, my first master's in, in women's studies in Ireland which was a beautiful experience that could take its own track in, a, in another direction. Um, and then after Ireland, I moved swiftly soon thereafter down to South Africa in late 2005 to start working for uh, a Dutch South African nonprofit called the Ndlovu Care Group. And Ndlovu means elephant in Zulu. And so it was a very interesting place to start my career because it was a, a medical center run by a Dutch doctor and his wife, and they started various programs. So there was an HIV treatment uh, component of the clinic. There was an HIV awareness and prevention program. There was a nutritional program for malnourished children. And then I started a program for orphans and vulnerable children, which was funded by UNICEF and engendered a, a lot of support and recognition and, and co-funding from the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, and the Vodacom Foundation, and the, the Royal Netherlands Embassy. And there was a lot of really good backing there. But it was very much in the world of development. It was, it was that the world of aid and the world of raising funds in order to complete a project and then raising more funds and proving that you had done what you said you would do. And so I did that for about three years. Then went on to work for Habitat for Humanity International in the Africa and Middle East Area Office and led programs there with orphans and vulnerable children for the next few years. But that's around the time, Sumit, that I started to feel quite uh, disillusioned with aid, actually. You know, I started to look around me and I was managing various large track one grants from USAID that were meant to serve orphans and vulnerable children and the caregivers uh, that worked with them. But I saw so much of these grants going to pay American consultants or buy American goods. And I just started to think it was a bit of a racket, actually. And I, I just also around that time, I read Dambisa Moyo's book called Dead Aid, 
which is a fantastic read for anybody who's uh, <laughs> harboring some cynicism about the world of AIDS. So in, in 2010, I made a wholehearted shift over to the for-profit sector, leaving the aid sector. And I went to work for a pan-African forestry company called the New Forests Company. And there I led corporate responsibility and ESG or environmental social governance. I would say the next five years was the most influential period of my career. I got to raise capital with my CEO and our leadership from impact investors and development financing institutions and and lots of international um, capital providers that were not only interested in in serious returns, but were also interested in creating jobs and ensuring that their investments were responsible. So that kind of put me into the world of ESG in a really firm way. And then after five years at New Forest, I I did a full-time MBA in Johannesburg. And then a lot of MBA graduates, I became a consultant, but my consulting has always been a world of ESG and impact. And did that consulting gig for a few years in Johannesburg. And then I turned 37 and I thought, if I don't move back to the States soon, I never will. And all my family is, is in California. About three years ago, I moved back to the States and then started working with Oracle NetSuite full time. But have also kept my ESG and impact consulting practice on the side because it helps me keep a finger on, on what's going on in the the capital raising and and ESG environment in Sub-Saharan Africa and and parts of Latin America. So that's a a bit about my story. I I now reside in Morrison, Colorado with my husband and two dogs. And um, we are getting geared up for winter, which means skiing and snowboarding and (laughs) all the, the fun snow sports. Thank you for sharing that story and what I found very fascinating is like the you have straddled both sides of the let's say the business world which is the for-profit and the not-for-profit uh, and it's uh, very aligned with what I have done in my life and how I have thought about aid charity hmm. and I, I come from India so that's where my background is so I have seen both the good aid and the bad aid not actually reaching the people and then over time I, I have started an NGO once and then I've started multiple for-profit companies. So how, how do you balance this in this world of economic growth, chasing uh, profits, and then on the other hand, making sure that the same growth is sustainable, not, not just for the business, but also for the communities in which the business operate and our planet as a whole? Yeah, I guess part of my response to a question like that is always that that these things are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, I would argue that companies that weave responsible orientation and strong ESG standards and and sort of an impact orientation into their DNA from the beginning are companies who are going to do better financially as well. The last year has shown us the, the S&P ESG index has actually outperformed the classical you know, vanilla S&P index over the last year. And granted, 2020 does not a trend make, but I think that there's more and more awareness and attention and kind of cognizance that leaders who elect to weave into the DNA of their company responsibility and attention for not only the people who work in their company, but the people who are affected by their company and certainly the the physical environment that's affected by their company are going to just do better. And that's in part because ESG information 
represents additional information in the investment decision-making process. And I think we can all agree that if you are going to make it a, an informed decision about where to place your capital, it's going to be better if you have more information. The more data, the better, certainly if it's, it's good, strong data. And I would argue that environmental, social, and governance information makes for more robust investment decision-making. And I also think that ESG serves as like a, a proxy indicator for leadership. If, if the CEO is is doing it well and is getting it right on, on the metrics of success around ESG, it's quite a strong possibility that he or she is also getting it right around the bottom line. So I guess my attitude toward a responsible investment at the same time as strong returns is that, in fact, one does support the other. And I've said in glittering generalities that my life's mission is that I want to live in a world where all companies are B corporations and all investments are impact investments. <laughs> so, so there's something yeah. to be said for deciding that the world we're going to live in and the types of businesses we're going to see and we're going to grow are businesses that are oriented around making the, the world a better place. And I, I really see very few exceptions to that orientation. Or I, I, rather, I would say that almost every vertical, every industry vertical one can think of has the potential to seed businesses and to ignite businesses that can make the world a better place. And I need that everything from oil and gas to alternative energy to education to healthcare. There, there are ways in every one of these industry verticals um, to add net value and to change the world in a positive way. And so that's what I want to do. I want to help founders and leaders and investors to get that kind of calculus. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and envisioning that world as you described. So a, a question which, which comes up for me, do, do you have any one or two events from your life, which you remember, which helped you to form this worldview? And help you to say that this is my mission in life, right? And and those events could be either uh, positive events of success or, or a negative event of uh, something not working out. Mm. I think one of the most important things that I discovered, and I, I, I say this because I think especially Americans can fall into the trap of not leaving their country or of, of just intellectually thinking that the news of the day ends at the edge of their borders, which I think is certainly not as common as it used to be and is, is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. But I think that mindset still exists. And I think one of the most important things I ever did was leave my country. <laughs> There's something very powerful and beautiful about studying abroad. There's something very powerful about being a foreigner in a foreign land and having to negotiate and figure that out. And there's also something really important and powerful about being a white person who voluntarily and purposefully puts herself in rooms where she is a minority. And I, I think we need to do more of that, especially as Americans and especially as white people. I think there's real value in exposing ourselves to ways of thinking or to worldviews that don't reflect our own. Because I think mass media already reflects a very biased view of the world. So I, I think going abroad and traveling abroad, and living abroad for so many years was one of the most important and positive things that I've ever done. And then on the negative side, there's, a, there's an experience that I had while at the New Forest Company, which I talk about a lot because it's really the thing or the, the event that catalyzed my passion and my commitment to a life of 
environmental social governance and impact orientation. And I'll, you know, I'll articulate it briefly, but but effectively in, in September of 2011, the New Forest Company became the subject of a very salacious campaign by an international NGO accusing our company of land grabbing in Uganda. So you can imagine that this is a, a David and Goliath sort of scenario. This NGO was very well known, very well funded. And then we were this small company that no one had ever heard of growing trees in East Africa and using that, the, that timber market for the local to feed the local market. So it was pretty devastating. And overnight, we lost an investment from a major lender. We faced disinvestment by many of our core shareholders. And it, it really threw the company into an existential crisis. It, we faced collapse. And what was so fascinating to me was that the only way through and the only way that we, we made it through and out the other end of that controversy was by was through our ESG performance. So though we had been accused of not complying with international standards, we then set about to internally audit and externally audit our company and our conduct and what we had done. All sorts of interesting facts and, and information came to the fore, which threw the claims of this NGO into to disrepute. And the long and short of that story is that after a, a two-year-long mediation and lots of engagement through the World Bank and through a lot of our core shareholders, we came out the other end and were able to clear our name and effectively demonstrate that we had behaved appropriately and responsibly. And we made right with the community in question and, and with the NGO that had originally made these claims. And we did all of that through uh, conscious, overt, transparent alignment with international ESG standards. And what was amazing to me was at the end of all of that, we were also able to mobilize new streams of capital. So it wasn't just that we were able to clear our reputation and to recover our sense of self and our, our identity as a company and as a responsible investor in East Africa, but we were also able to, to unlock new streams of capital, which were only available to companies who were proving themselves responsible. So impact investments and, and capital from development financing institutions like DEG, FMO, and CDC, and the sort of world of three-letter acronyms from Europe, FinFund, et cetera. So it was amazing to me that what that taught me was that ESG is not only the right way to orient and to, to build your company with a strong ESG orientation and identity, but it can also be one of your strongest fundraising levers. And I mean that in the best possible way, because we all know that companies that want to grow need to raise capital and they need to do so in a way that's transparent and aggressive. And if you can raise capital on the back of your orientation as a responsible company, then that's the kind of world I want to live. That's the kind of capital I want to be infusing into companies. And I think a lot of us would, would get behind that idea. So that what started as a very negative experience, it was very traumatic. It was anyone who's ever had a, a reputational claim against their company can tell you that it's very painful. It's very it's long hours. It's effectively the existential threat against your livelihood. But if you can make it through and you can transform the dialogue, it, it, can, it was certainly for me the most powerful educator of my career. And, and it really set me on a path toward lifelong advisory on ESG and impact for other types of companies that are trying to get this right from the beginning and or companies that are, are trying to change their ways and to get it right on their path. 
So those are a couple of, of experiences that come to mind. Yes. Uh, and I think that's the last story which you mentioned highlights not just the importance of ESG or, or being transparent, but also that how crisis situations, like a situation which might seem like a crisis at one point, can actually turn into a learning opportunity and we can actually come out stronger as better people, better businesses, better leaders out of that. Exactly. And I'm also fascinated by what you shared earlier, that how you, as an white American, how you moved to different countries, how you studied abroad, and that shaped you as a person. In the, in the context of leadership, what have you seen as you have traveled across the globe and as you have worked with different kinds of businesses, different kinds of cultures? What do you think is missing like in, in an American or in, in a Western leadership model? And what do you think are the commonalities which you have seen as when it comes to leadership, irrespective of where the leader is, what is the kind of work they're doing or the culture that they're living in? Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that, that Western leaders make is the assumption of the ubiquity of Westernness. We move through the world sometimes in this way that that carries with it a, a sort of an arrogant assumption that everyone else does things the way they do things. And that is, I think, a mistake and it's a missed opportunity for learning because if nothing else, in moving around and working in different parts of the world, in particular in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, I've learned a lot about opening my eyes, observing the ways that leaders conduct themselves in different circles and modeling after that. Because if you walk into a room, let's say, with a, a minister in Uganda and you approach the meeting in the kind of classical American, get right down to business, let's get straight to the facts way, you're going to miss something. You're going to miss something really important, which I think has everything to do with trust building. But you will not sit down in a meeting in any part of Sub-Saharan Africa, in my experience, without spending the first, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes, sometimes longer becoming acquainted and becoming comfortable and talking about places of origin and origin stories and home villages and families. And I think all of that is not soft. It's not needless and it's not nice to have. I think that exchange of information is critical to establishing trust, especially in environments where trust has not always been honored or sometimes especially with foreign outsiders, trust has been abused or exploited. The more that one can slow down <laughs> and ask questions and listen and engage in the sort of informal connection with other human beings, the more effective he or she is going to be at getting it done, whatever it is that they want to get done, the more effective they will be at achieving their objectives. Because at the end of the day, we all want to connect with each other. We all want to learn from each other. And we also all are going to reserve a certain amount of trust until it's been earned, until it, it, it's, there's, it warrants, the situation warrants it. And I think what we have to remember is that certainly in the North American context, I, I see a lot of meetings just start right away and everybody jumps right into it because there's this presupposition of uh, similarity. We all look similar or talk similar or are oriented by the same cultural cues and, and uh, <laughs> idiomatic language uh, references. But when you don't have that common ground with someone to start with, 
the best thing you can do is build it. And you build it on things that transcend culture. You build it on places of origin and families and history and memory and even political orientation. There's so many ways to connect with other people. And I think that's one of the things that certainly Westerners could take a, a cue um, from our friends in the global South and our colleagues in the global South from different ways of doing business. And I think the other thing I've learned is that we're certainly, I would say in North America right now, we're in a uniquely polarized scenario. In a lot of ways, we are uh, more polarized politically in this country than we have ever been before. And I think what's Part of what drives that is this global polarity, that there's this kind of growing sense of us and them and our team, their team, this kind of tribalistic team-oriented identification. Strikes me as I travel and as I work with people in companies and in organizations across the world is that we have so much more in common than we do not in common. And I think that's perhaps a bit trite and perhaps a bit of an aphorism, but it's also true. (laughs) And I, I found that Wherever you are, you're going to find common ground with other people. And that's the fastest way to build trust. And it's the fastest way to protect yourself and to find security and frankly, to find community. In the 21st century, I think, and certainly the Surgeon General is worried of this, one of the most dramatic forces facing humanity is not only heart disease and cancer, but it's also a spate of loneliness, right? We are more isolated and more separated from one another than we've ever been. And I think what needs to be a premium as we move around the world and as we do business is connecting with other people and creating community. Those are some things that sort of strike me as I'm around the world. And so certainly the ability to learn from the ways of doing business from cultures and colleagues unlike ourselves and the importance of community and creating connections with other human beings and having that be, frankly, a source of happiness and a source of place and a source of mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I I think this is very aligned with my story as well, because I come from the other side. Like I start, I lived in India and a very different India of 1980s and 1990s than what India is today. And then I worked with American companies and then I moved to Europe and I have traveled. And I think what you are, talking about is also that how if we can close ourselves in our old country or in our old bubbles, we can leave out huge blind spots which we don't see. It's not just we don't know something, we don't even know that we don't know something. So it's it's like a huge blind spot and the power of empathy, I think just listening to different people and acknowledging that they might have something new to share. I think that's what travel and working with people from different countries have shown me that I can never trust what I am thinking about, what other people are saying, and then to be more open and be more brave sometimes to ask questions, to make sure that I understand them better before going into the tactical stuff. And I think that's what what I am also taking away from what you shared. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. With your work currently, what is it that you find most challenging that stops you to create this balance of uh, growth as well as making sure that it is sustainable, it is aligned with with the goals which the UN has set? There is still an incredible need to demystify these ideas of sustainability and, and responsibility. I don't come across very often 
a, a leader in a company who says, no, we do not want to be responsible. We think all of that is nonsense. It's very rare. Most people want to do a good job. Most people want to get it right. They want their companies to, to have a, a positive impact on the world and they want the people who work there to be happy. These are pretty common desires, I think, for most founders and for most leaders of companies. But I think there's a lot of confusion still about what these things mean. So you and I can have a, a, a detailed, in-depth, robust discussion about the International Finance Corporation's eight performance standards or the World Bank Environmental and Social framework or the sustainable development goals of the UN or the UN principles for responsible investment. I could go on and on. There are so many frameworks, GRI, SASB, mm -hmm. the world of three-letter acronyms, which I think cause a certain level of uh, stagnation in, in effect for a lot of leaders because they just don't know where to start. I think, I, I don't sense that companies are inherently bad or that leaders of companies are inherently bad. I think the companies that are not yet achieving what they want to achieve in terms of impact are simply not sure how to get it right or simply not sure which standards to align with, how to report on them, what to monitor, how to monitor it. And I also think there's the misconception among some company leaders that doing this work around environmental social governance and around impact will detract from the core of the business. I've heard it said many times that if you focus on ESG and impact work, that you will somehow not be able to focus on the bottom line or on the core business. And I would argue that it's just patently false. I have seen various models of ESG interventions in my time in Sub-Saharan Africa, where a recommendation has literally saved the company money from an operational perspective, while at the same time, honoring and advancing environmental, social governance responsibility. That can go anywhere from how you use, reuse, conserve, and monitor water usage. It can apply to your energy usage. And because if you think about it, if you're conscious about energy usage and, and using more alternative sources of energy, you may have more upfront CapEx expenditure, but in the long run, you're going to reduce your operational expenditure significantly because you're not uh, buying the same types of expensive, dirty energy. I would say that one of the biggest challenges I have when I talk to leaders of companies and, and colleagues of mine who also are in the, the space, what I hear a lot is that there's still a misconception that by focusing on this work, you're going to have to forego returns, or you're going to have to spend additional money, or you're going to have to take your eye off the ball as far as the core of the business. Hmm. And I have seen that to be disproven over and over again. I remember a few years ago, I, I was giving an ESG session, like a three-hour training to uh, a general partner, so a, a private equity investor in Johannesburg, South Africa. And when I stood up to start the session, I'll never forget it. The CFO stood up and said, I just want you to know, I think all of this is nonsense and it is a waste of our time. And I don't know why we're all giving you this three hours. I think all of this is going to take away from the core of the business. So that was how we started the day. So this guy stands up and says this. And I accepted him and, um, and went on about the day. And without getting too much into the detail, by the end of the day, this same man stood up and said to me, I want to say to everyone here and to Kate that I was wrong and that I actually have had several ideas over the course of this training around how we can use this ESG stuff and this impact stuff to 
reduce our costs and to improve our operations and to improve our, not only our staff complement, but our retention of good staff. I felt that that was a, a, a very important little win because that is the biggest job we have is to transform the mindsets of, of those types of folks. I think a lot of us are already on the side of, of getting it and, and advocating for this work. Is there a recommendation or, or some advice you would give to people who are either unsure themselves or they find themselves in companies or in, in front of leaders who are like not accepting of these ideas? I think one of the mistakes that people like us make is that when we want to advocate for ESG, we advocate for it from the perspective of responsibility, altruism, and changing the world. And that's fine if you're talking to people who already think that way. <laughs> but when you're talking to people who don't think that way, you have to reorient your pitch. You have to know your audience. And I can tell you right now, when I walk into a room of CFOs or financial controllers or operational managers, you can bet that my, my talk track is not going to be about changing the world of being a responsible company. My talk track is going to be around how can you use ESG to reduce costs and how can you use ESG to raise capital and how can you use ESG to become an employer of choice and to, to not only attract, but to retain talent. So that's the way I would talk about this work from if I'm addressing a group of people who are obviously quite resistant to this work. So I think the answer to the question is know your audience and shift your talk track depending on the interests and the, the worldviews of the people you're talking to. We all have to reorient ourselves to be heard. And that's no different with ESG. Exactly right. And I think just tying up the old thread on um, the previous thread on empathy. I think this also highlights the importance of speaking to your audience and then speaking to what people are willing to listen to. And I think what you shared about responsibility as a point uh, for convincing somebody, it can often sound like you're blaming others or you're making yourself right and there's a person wrong. Uh, and I see so many leaders uh, struggling with, with communication and they do not see the, the, the common elements which tie us all together that we all want to be listened to, we all want to be acknowledged and how we can tailor our communication to not just get our ideas across but to also to take care of what the other person is thinking about or what their concerns are. Exactly. I, I think that's a really important point to pull out, Sumit, that, that, that really what all of this is, everything that I'm talking about is about empathy. It's about empathizing with people who might not, on the face of it, understand or adopt this work early on. And the only way you can change their mindset or show them the value of this work is by empathizing with their position. Exactly. Yeah. I think one critical aspect of leadership is how to take people along with you without pushing them to be with you, without pushing them to your ways of thinking. And I don't mean pushing, like forcing somebody, but it can play a part in very subtle ways, which we don't realize that in our communication, we tend up making people defensive because we put an idea across without understanding the other person's opinion or their worldview or with where they're coming from. Mm. Coming back to your personal story, is there one or two people who have had the most influence uh, on your leadership? I would say that none of my ideas are original. 
And none of my motivation is self-generated. <laughs> I'll start with that because, yeah, who are we unless we're, we're taking from and being inspired by uh, other people who seem to get it? Um, I'll give you a couple of, of points. Everyone in this country, unless they are a Native American, is the child of immigrants in some way. And I'm no different. I think a lot about my ancestors, who my maternal great-grandmother came over from Ireland and my uh, maternal great-grandfather came over from Sweden. And these people were a strong stock of people. They came over in boats, in steerage to Ellis Island and found their way into this country to make a better life for themselves, which is no different than anybody else who wants to leave their place of origin and go somewhere in the hopes of making a better life for them family. So I, I think a lot about them. And it's one of the reasons that I named my consulting firm, Ackerblom Advisory. In Swedish, you would say Ackerblom Advisory. Mm -hmm. And that is our Swedish family surname. And, and the reason I use that name is because for me, it is an incredible source of pride and inspiration because my great grandfather came to this country with nothing and, and eventually found his way to Los Angeles, where he built a very beautiful company building strong Swedish homes for Hollywood stars. <laughs> so, and that company still exists today. The, the, his sons took it over and their sons took it over and it, it's still a, a thriving business. And that for me is, is very inspirational. But beyond that, I, I would say I, I do a lot of reading because in the last few years, we've been alone a lot, isolated. So I would, I would point to a lot of authors as being motivators and inspiration for me. The first of, of which who wrote Dead Aid, which changed my life, really, was Dambisa Moyo. And she's a, she's a Zambian economist and academic. She's on the board of several publicly traded international companies. And she's written quite a few interesting books, not only Dead Aid, the book that changed my life, but she wrote How the West Was Lost. And recently she wrote a book on how boards work, so boards of directors and how they function. Mm -hmm. I've derived incredible inspiration and, and knowledge from her writings. A few years ago, I read the book Winners Take All by Anand Jiriharidas, and I, always, I may be mispronouncing his surname, uh, but it's a great book on the pitfalls of traditional aid models, as well as the pitfalls of modern impact investment models. So this is a book where the author takes a lot of my closely held views and, and nails them against the wall, which I think is very healthy. <laughs> there was a, in that same vein, there was a book called The Givers by Callahan, which I would strongly recommend, which kind of documents a lot of the most influential and formidable global sources of philanthropy and, and how they're starting to shape the conversation around things like education and healthcare in ways that are outsized. I've always enjoyed Jonathan Haidt and his work around righteousness and the ideas of, of sort of us and them. And his first book, or one of his books, the first book I read of his was called The Righteous Mind. And it's about how we can become so indignant about our views and, and how we, we vilify the other side of any issue in order to ensconce our, our view and our, our perspective. And then recently he published a book a few years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind, which I don't think is unique to Americans. Business books are interesting to me. Certainly anything around conscious capitalism, that's actually a book by the founder of Whole Foods Markets. Um, anything around impact investment, B Corp certification. These are all really interesting ideas to me. Thank you. I, I have conscious capitalism right on my desk right now. 
Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I, I am a very avid reader as well. And I think I, I was able to connect to what you were sharing, talking about multiple books and authors being an inspirational figure for you. And for me, reading a book is like having a conversation with the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I take a lot of inspiration. And sometimes I have reached out to people and connected them just because I have read their book or have been influenced or I have been touched by what they said or what they have shared. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's one big common thread. And what you shared about your family ancestry, family heritage. And I think that's the fact that we are we are talking now across two different continents. Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up in a third continent. And then both of us have traveled and, and your experience. I think what it shows us is that we are all the same. I think we can put labels uh, to to divide us. We can put labels to to talk about us, uh, like using words like immigrants or, or even talking about countries or cultures. But I think what what I'm taking away from what you shared about your family heritage and how you named your consulting firm is that we are all the same. And then mm-hmm. how sometimes we tend to separate ourselves and that's where you ended with the fear and how that stops us from connecting to each other. Thank you a lot, Kate, for sharing your story and sharing these wonderful examples and, and nuances from your work, which is very wide ranging. Thank you, Sumit. Thank you for reaching out and for hosting this conversation. I think you're doing a lot to elevate the discourse around leadership and centeredness and integration. And I, for one, will continue to be a, a consumer of your content and, and your ideas. And I, I just appreciate the invitation. Thank you for the chance to chat. Thank you, Kate. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. Not just for yourself, but also for those around you. This is what I do most naturally. To lovingly and gently provoke you. To help you see your own light. To help you see what you are already capable of. I say what might be uncomfortable for me to say or for you to hear, to show you that all our dreams which have been on hold are within our grasp. If you like the sound of it, do not forget to leave a rating. I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at deployyourself.com slash newsletter. You can also reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook to share any other comment or feedback. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.